You know, it was about uh, a little over 20 years ago when uh, I had uh, a very first chance to preach in a church on a Sunday morning. And uh, I was involved in a church, a Kishwaukee Bible Church, and, you know, had, had done lots of things in terms of leading Bible study and leading worship, and, but I'd never had the chance to actually stand before our congregation and actually des- deliver a, a monologue, if you will. And um, when, when I did so, <clears throat> I thought about what text to preach, and I thought about, well, what, what text has impacted me most deeply? What, what text do I know really well? What text should be really helpful for our church body to know? And um, my text I chose was Romans chapter 1. The very text that we are, are preaching, I'm preaching this morning, though I'm, I'm not preaching that message I preached. However, we're beginning that text. As I went Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32, and today we're just going to really get through uh, verse 18, uh, kind of as we summarize uh, the first three chapters of Romans. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, as we continue our, our verse-by-verse exposition of this wonderful Wonderful book. If you don't have a Bible, uh, right there in, in the Pew Bible in front of you, at page 939, you can find it there. If you don't have a Bible at home, take it. It's our, our gift to you. And as I think about 20 years ago, I think about one reason also why I preach this passage, because it's so foundational. I mean, it, it's, it's one of those texts of the Bible that, that really sets, sets a course for our understanding of our worldview, Sets a course for understanding about how the Bible works together, how the, how the gospel works, and uh, just sets a lot of things in straight. So in other words, if you get Romans 1 right, you get a lot of things in the Bible right. If you miss Romans chapter 1, you miss a lot of things in the Bible. It's really that important. It's that, that foundational. And Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, tells us how God has made Himself known, how he has, he has clearly manifest Himself to really everyone. He has done that through creation. He has done that through building within each of us a conscience. That we might know the difference between right and wrong. He's done that through the Scriptures. Clearly laying out for us the law of God. What, what He would want and demand from us. And of all of us, rather than responding to these things, we've rebelled. We've rebelled. Every single one of us, and, and here's, here's a big point today, because of our rebellion, our condemnation is totally just. I mean, there's no way that you can complain about God's condemnation of anybody. And, and, and you really need to get that right, is that... Um, God will never be accused of being unfair in condemning people to eternal punishment in hell. He'll never be unfair. He is just. He is right. Our eternal condemnation apart from Christ would be totally just because He's shown Himself to everyone. And without exception, everyone has rejected Him. And we are rightly judged for our sin. And what we we don't need his education. People don't need to know more in order to say, oh, I didn't know this. I need to know this. No, people need a, really a transformation. They need a, a change 
of heart. Because God has made himself known to everybody. And it's only when people's hearts are changed. That only comes by grace. Which Paul, by the way, brings up in chapter 3, verse 24. You can kind of skip over there and look at, look at God's grace to us who believe. And here's the good news of the gospel, right? We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And there's the gospel right there. Is that, is that by God's grace, we, we stand justified. That is, we stand before God uh, totally legitimatized, like totally without sin, we can stand in the presence of our holy God because our sin has been washed away through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's what verse 24 speaks about. This is a marvelous gift. Our, our, our salvation comes as a gift. It's by His grace that it totally comes to us. We don't deserve it at all. But God lavishes upon us and, and gives it to us. And that is, that's the most marvelous news in the world that we could ever have. But before Paul gets to chapter 3, help me out kids, he deals with chapters 1 and 2. Good, thank you. Before he gets to chapter 3, he deals with chapters 1 and 2. Before he gets to the good news of our salvation, chapter 3, 21 and following, he needs to begin first with the bad news of our condemnation. My message this morning is entitled, The Bad News. Because that's indeed what we, we see this morning. And the, the bad news, obviously, then is contrasted with the good news. So all of you know, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, Paul's letter to the Romans is all about the gospel. Paul's all about being eager to preach the gospel. Being eager to know the gospel. Being eager to tell the gospel. And it's really, our application is really that we might be eager to tell, say the gospel as well. Now the gospel literally though means good news. That is euangelizo, the, the good message that comes. That's, that's the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is good news for our souls because that has brought us to God. It's the one way to bring us to God and that's, that's really good. But here's the reality of the situation is you cannot really grasp the good news until you grasp the bad news. And just as I jumped right into chapter 3, verse 24, which I hope to end my message on as well, is that, that there's the good news, but apart from the bad news, the good news kind of just, just falls flat. Okay, I just want to illustrate this, all right? Consider a text I received from my daughter Hannah. Okay, I didn't really receive this text, but suppose I did. That just this text, you know, I'm texting and... And um, the text says, Dad, I arrived at Grandma and Grandpa's house. All is well. Is that good news? Yes. Uh, Yes, it's good news. She's safe and sound, right? But you're never going to realize how good the good news was to realize how bad the bad news was. Okay, so imagine the context in which I received this text. It's Saturday in February, and Hannah's playing her club volleyball. And she goes off to her tournament deep in the suburbs of Chicago someplace. And I text her somewhat late in the afternoon, maybe 4 o'clock or so, and I say, Hannah, how's the volleyball tournament going? And uh, she says, good. We just finished. We won twice and lost twice. I'm, I'm coming home soon. And I texted back, okay, be, be careful out there, Hannah. There's a winter storm warning. She says, I'll be okay. Well, don't dally. It's getting dark soon. 
After an hour or so, concerned dad touched the base with Hannah and says, how's the drive home? She texts while she's driving. She's not supposed to, but she's real short. She just says, slow. I said, well, be careful. She says, I am. Another hour passes. I say, Hannah, how far are you? She says, not very. I'm just now getting to the tollway. It's really bad. Only one lane's open. I text, any updates? She says, the wind is really strong. The road is really icy. I'm going about 10 miles an hour. And I reply, I'm praying. She says, thanks. Five minutes later, I just, Dad. I text back, yeah. I just slid off the road. I said, are you okay? She says, yeah, what should I do? I said, well, try calling a tow truck. She says, okay. 30 minutes later, she texts. She says that the tow trucks are all busy and out. They can get me in about four hours. About five minutes later, she says, I just ran out of gas. And I'm cold. I said, you bring a coat? She said, no. Now, the backstory of that is I always tell our kids to bring a coat and just leave it in the car in case you're car has problems, but that's like a whole backstory. I didn't have time to explain. I'm just texting, right? <clears throat> Give a blanket? No. Well, mom and I are praying. About an hour later, she gets texted. Someone has stopped. I reply back, praise the Lord. Fifteen minutes later, she says, I'm in his car. It's not a very nice car. The heat's not working. I hope he doesn't get stuck. He's kind of creepy. I'm scared. Okay, and we laugh at that, but on a cold road with a creepy man bringing your daughter home is half hour later, well, we're, we're near DeKalb at least. He says he can drop me off at Grandma and Grandpa's house. I hope we can make it. I'm, I'm really scared. I text back, well, we are really praying. At 2 in the morning, I received the text. Dad, I arrived at Grandma and Grandpa's house. All is well. Is that good news? Yeah. Now, I, what made the difference between that first text? I read the exact same thing. Dad, I arrived at Grandma and Grandpa's house. All is well. The difference is you realize how bad the bad news was and how good the good news is that here's my daughter... Hannah is safe and warm. It could have turned out so much worse. Praise the Lord. And with us, and when we hear Romans 3, 24, that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, it could have been so much worse. And that's what's taking place in our text this morning. Beginning in chapter, eight, chapter 1, verse 18. Paul paints the backdrop of the gospel really as dark and dark as it can be. He concludes, Romans 3, verse 10, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We all have sinned. None of us have done good. And what does that mean? We all stand guilty before the triune God. And that's what Paul's getting at, Romans 
Now we know whatever the law says. It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become accountable to God. That's the whole point of Romans 1.18 through 3.20 is that the whole world would be stopped. Every mouth would be stopped. Parents, maybe you experience this with your children. You're trying to establish something and they talk back. And they talk back. And they talk back. Well, maybe at some point you get to the point where their mouth, is they're just done. That's what Paul is getting at in verse 19. So that every mouth may be stopped and silent before God come judgment day. No one will blame God of any unrighteousness. Verse 20, by the works of a law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. Right? In other words, we're talking about the Jews particularly, but through the law, they're they're never going to be good enough to be justified. They're, They're going to be dead in their sin. And then comes the but in chapter 3, verse 21. Help me out, Hannah. What's this called? This is called a a blessed but. Those blessed buts in Scripture, like Ephesians 2, verse 4, and And here it is, but, but, the but that changes our lives, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Verse 22, the, the righteousness that comes of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And there it is, white as could be, forgiveness, good news, shining forth. The bad news comes and the good news comes. I want you just to notice a little bit, but 21 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Paul brought up the righteousness of God in chapter 1, verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. But before he reveals the righteousness of God, he has to reveal what? What does verse 18 say? He's got to reveal the, the wrath of God. And that's what comes in verse 18. When you understand how dark the bad news is, you'll be able to understand how good the good news is. Now, before we dig into verse 18, and really, um, we're going to be in verse 18 only like five minutes, okay? We're going to go all all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. And... uh, we're going to just trace out his argument so we see where Paul is going. You know, it's always good when you're on a road trip to kind of have a general understanding of where you're going. Uh, this past week, Yvonne and I, along with Phil and Karen and, and Darren and Maggie, went to a biblical counseling conference in uh, Indianapolis, ACBC Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. A great time. Practical theology is really, really a wonderful time. We all had kind of an elders retreat, if you will. And as we're, we're driving there, um, I just said, okay, Vaughn, so here, we had dropped David off in DeKalb because he was sick, so he stayed with Grandma and Grandpa, safe and sound. And uh, we're driving out 88, and I kind of knew how to get to Indianapolis. I'm going to go to Chicago and turn right, but I didn't know exactly where. And, and I said, so how, well, what's my path? He said, 88 to 294, and then you jump on 80, and then you take 65 south. I'm like, Okay. And that could get me there because I, I like, I like no, I can watch for the signs and see where those are, and I could at least get us close to Indianapolis to figure out where our hotel is. And that's what I want to do with Romans 1 through 3 this morning. I want to just give you this big signpost, these big things, so that you kind of know where Paul is going until we hit that blessed butt in chapter 3. And the uh, first thing he does is he speaks about the Gentiles. 
He speaks about those who didn't have the revelation of God, um, who just knew about God through, uh, through revelation. And, and this, this scene here from Romans 1 and following is really, it's a, it's a courtroom scene, if you will. And, and Paul is dealing right here with uh, an objection, where a Gentile might stand up and object, and he might say this. There's the argument. We didn't hear. We didn't know. And God says, oh, but you did know. No one can claim ignorance before God because God has revealed himself to everyone in creation. The Gentiles know God through creation. That's what verses 18 and following talk about. He says, the wrath of God, verse 18 is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are right there without excuse. They can't make this excuse, Paul, but but how can God judge us? We didn't know. We didn't know that there was a God. We didn't know that we'd be accountable to Him. God says, oh yes, you knew. God revealed Himself to you in the creation. In the sun, He revealed Himself. In the moon, He revealed Himself. And in all of the stars, He revealed Himself. Listen to Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. The creation speaks to all of its inhabitants, telling the world of the Creator. Isaac Watts penned long ago in that children's hymn, There's not a plant nor flower below, but makes thy glories known. You can look to the skies and see God. And and the skies are telling of God's glory. And the more and more we get of telescopes that that peer deeper and deeper into the skies and find more and more stars and more and more galaxy, it becomes to us more and more glory of God. How Peter started our service, just the the glories of everything. He just picked out grass. You can find the glory of God. How does grass grow? And how does grass feed horses? You, you can look to the, the skies, you can look to the ground, you can look to your body. I mean, just, just consider your hand. I mean, that is unbelievable. We, we, we can't, we've never made a machine like this that can see and sense and grab and be strong and be gentle. It's a hand. I don't know how many bones. I didn't look that up. 30 bones, maybe. I don't know. Your wrist is all... And, and Psalm 113, 139, verse 14 says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I mean, all you need to do is just look at your own body and how it works. You don't have to think about it. It just repairs itself. You give it food, it tells you you're hungry. You know that you're, you're cold, so you put on something. You, you know when you're, you're tired, you'll, you'll go to sleep. And when, even when you're asleep, you're still going <sighs> to... You're still going to breathe without even thinking about it. 
And everyone who's ever lived and existed has a body. And everyone can see everything around. But sadly, the world has not turned to God. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him, ask God, or give thanks. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. God revealed Himself to the creation and the creation turned away from God. They didn't honor Him. They didn't give thanks to Him. Rather, they went their own way. And God says, here I am. And they just turned away and they walked this way. And you know what God did? God just said, all right, if that's really what you want, that's what you'll get. And look at chapter 1, verse 24. And we're going to look at this more detail next week. Therefore, because they exchanged God's glory for other things, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity. He said, just, okay, you want to pursue that impurity? You go right ahead. Chapter 1, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. You want to go after that dishonorable passion? You want to sin in that way? You just go right ahead. Or verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do the things that ought not to be done. So they just God said, okay, if that's what you want, go ahead. So you need to understand here is that when people turn, when people are sinning, they're sinning of their own volition and their condemnation from Almighty God is totally just. The Gentile world, those apart from any biblical revelation of God, see God in creation and turn away and want nothing to do with that, and they await the judgment of God, and God will be absolutely 100% fair, and they will be without excuse. That's what chapter 1 is about. Chapter 2 makes a little bit of a, a transition. Away from just the Gentiles, he maybe begins to include some Jews, but these Gentiles, maybe they're they're uh, more righteous Gentiles. They're, they're moral Gentiles, perhaps. Maybe they're Jews. But it's, it's all Jews and Gentiles who would judge themselves to be able to stand before God. I'm just calling these the judges. We've seen the Gentiles, and then these are the judges who are looking at other people and judging themselves. And um, <clears throat> they also are guilty. But they bring an objection to God as well, and their objection goes like this. That argument won't fly before God. It says, oh, see how bad those people are? Yes, I see all those people in, in their sin. Oh, yes, but we're not like that because we have some semblance of morality. Listen to what, what Paul says, verse, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? This is the reality of every single one of us who walk the planet. Is that we can rightly see the wrong in other people but we can hardly see the wrong in our own eyes. And so we can condemn others as being, oh, no, I'm not like that, or I'm not as bad as that. 
How many times you heard the, the thing, well, I'm not like Hitler. I've never killed anybody, right? They just take the worst of the worst and I'm not like that. Therefore, I'm on the, I'm on the good side. Rather than realizing, well, well, maybe he is a murderer, right? And, and uh, a predator, but you know what? Maybe I'm still over here as well. Just because I'm distanced from that doesn't make me over here. Also, Jesus spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount how well we can see the sins of others and not see it ourselves. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye but not notice the log that's in your own eye? Listen, and just as God has made himself known to the Gentile world and and to the Jewish world too, but everybody in creation, so also has he given us a moral compass. It's called a conscience. That the judges know God through conscience. That is that inner voice telling us what's right and wrong. Listen, right, and and all of us are aware of what's good and bad, right and wrong. And, And that's why, in general, when you look at the laws of nations... Okay, there's lots of exceptions to this, but I think probably more the rule than the exception is that laws are, are good and holy and righteous for the most part. Certainly they're corrupt governments and those are bad, but especially here in the United States, the vast majority of our, our laws are good and righteous. Now, it may be too many laws, of course, but, but it's good. It's like, right, you, you don't speed so you don't hurt somebody, right? You, um you know, whatever. You can't cheat somebody. You can't take things out of stores. Why? Because that's stealing, right? You, you need to be truthful with people. You need to be honest in your dealings. I mean, there's, there's a lot of morality. Why? Because I believe it's God has given us a, an internal law of himself in our hearts. And Paul is beginning to talk about this in verse 14. It says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have a law. Right? And here he's talking about people who don't, don't have any law, maybe he's never read the Bible, still they do what's right many times because God has given us a, a conscience. It says in verse 15 then, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or either excuse them on the day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. You know, we've often seen this picture. These little guys standing on their shoulders. And, uh, and, and one guy is our, is our conscience, you know, Jiminy Cricket, if you will. And he's instructing us in the way that we should go. And then the other guy on the shoulder is really our own desires, what we want, Paul calls the flesh, seeking to go the way of evil. And this battle, like, rages on in our, in our head. And the fact that battle rages, and it rages in every single one of us. It rages in everyone, because God has given us all a conscience. And it says that battle between the mind and the conscience and the flesh goes on and on. That's what Paul calls here, verse 15, conflicting thoughts. That they're accusing or else defending, and that's going on. And God knows the secrets of men, in verse 16. And He will bring those to bear on Judgment Day. And as God strikes your conscience, you know full well what is right and what's wrong. Paul knew the struggle, Romans chapter 7. 
He's going to lay out the whole battle of sanctification. There's the law, and he knows what he should do, but his flesh wants him to do something else. And there's, there's this battle that goes on him. He says, uh, I know the law is spiritual, but I'm under the flesh, sold into sin. I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. I, I want to do what my conscience tells me to, but too often I listen to my flesh. And God says, you listen to your flesh And I'll rightly condemn you. And so even if you don't have the scriptures, even if you just have the conscience of God, as you fail in walking in a righteous way, you'll stand before God and your conscience will be witness against you. I've heard Tim Keller use this illustration before. It's a wonderful illustration about just how we become a law to ourselves. Verse 14. He said, suppose we had a a tape recorder just taped to you all, all the time. And uh, just throughout your life was just recording the words. And in the ways, the words that you condemn other people. And you judge other people. God says, what, what, what if I just record all of those and just make that your law, your standard of righteousness and how you've condemned other people? And have, have you lived up to that? And for all the truthful, we know that we've not. We've failed even according to our own law. We have failed according to our own conscience. And these are the judges. We're, we're judging others. And, and God will rightly condemn us. We are, are lost in our sin because we haven't lived up to that. We will not escape the judgment. So Paul begins here by describing the plight of the, the Gentiles who knew God through creation and the, the judges who knew God in conscience. And now he finishes with the Jews and their objection goes like this. We're the chosen ones. Paul gives objection there. Chapter 2, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew... And rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you're preaching, do not steal or against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? He gives a picture here of a man who knows the Bible, boasts in God, has been instructed by the law. He knows all that God has revealed. He knows what's right and wrong. He knows God as the Jews do through the, the Scripture. And yet he does wrong. And, and Paul's point here in chapter 2 is that Jews fail in living up to what they know. He fails to live up to the righteous requirements of the law, and the indictment comes in verses 23 and 24. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. As it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, right? we know we're the righteous ones, look at how right we live, and then as they dishonor God... Not only is it sin against God, but the Gentiles then blaspheme God on their account because of them. What a scary thing when professing Christians act 
unlike Christians. And, and the watching world sees and then is able to point a finger and the name of God is blasphemed. And this happens all the time. All the time. And this past Friday night, I, I went to a football game uh, with Lance Menon, who's a pastor at, uh, a youth pastor at Mount Morris E.B. Free Church. His sons, who are cousins to our, our kids, um, were playing football there, so I decided to go and, and watch him play. And uh, had a Jake plays on the JV team and Caleb on the varsity team. And here's a, here's a little picture of a play going on. <clears throat> they played Oregon is where they live. They played Rockford Lutheran. I was up for the game. The JV game was great. Went right down to the wire. Oregon won. So I'm cheering for Oregon. So that was really fun. And then I stayed for some of the varsity game. And, and Jake, having played the JV game, showered. And then he, he came to join us. And it was very interesting to get his take on the, on the game. He explained his fumble that he did. He explained his good plays, his bad plays. How many, I said, Jake, how many plays do you guys have? And he starts going. He said, it counts like 11 plays, I think. I said, what are their names? You know, he starts to go 46 belly, 22 belly, 55 wide out, kind of like these, these names. It was, really, it was really interesting. But the thing that stood out to me is he said, you know, it was amazing how much trash talking the Lutheran guys did. The profanity that came out of their mouths was unbelievable. Every play. Here they are. Rockford, Lutheran a professing Christian organization. Prayer was said before the game began and the conduct of the players in the field, not, not from what I saw, but from down on the field, was far from a constant Christian walk. And here's the difficult things. The men and boys have like this evangelistic Bible study at their school with their football team that's probably 15, 20 people now. Of this just year after year of Christian testimony, Christian testimony of what they're doing and uh, the conduct of the players at the Christian school is not helping their cause in reaching these kids for Christ. In fact, even Lance, I talked to him, he's just thinking about writing a letter to the administration, just, just telling him how much it's hurting his evangelism that these kids are, are just swearing at this, this Christian school. And I think 24 is, is true, right? The name of God is blasphemy among the Gentiles. See, when professing Christians live in willful, blatant, unrepentant sin, God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, the non-Christians. Oh, that's how a Christian lives. That's how a Christian lives, huh? And no doubt, I'm not trying to bash Rockford Lutheran, believe me. And and I understand the difficulty with Christian schools, right? The students aren't there by, by choice. Parents have often sent them. They don't have to have a Christian testimony to go in school. And so I, I'm just saying lots of the kids in the field are, are not Christians is what I think. Even, even their parents, I think uh, many of them aren't, aren't Christians. I mean, Hannah goes to Rockford Christian High School, um, a couple classes so she can play sports. And I had a chance. I was, I was talking with one of her teammates' parents uh, just this past week and uh, asked him about his job and how are sales going and how are things doing. And I've had several conversations with him before in the past. And finally then he did the, what do you do question? And so I said, um, I'm a pastor. I have the greatest job in the world. I get to tell people how their sins are forgiven. And he quickly changed the conversation back to his sales and his thing. Nothing about, oh, really? What church? Where are you going? I don't think he goes to church. And, And parents, just don't kid yourself. You send your children to a Christian school don't, don't think that's an end-all, end-all. There's plenty of non-Christian um, 
influence there. In fact, it may be in some regards more dangerous to send him to a Christian school where you learn Christian ways than going to a secular school where you've got to make a choice. Are you in or you out? Don't just think, oh, I can do that. I can just send him to a Christian college. It's okay. Because it might be, might be dangerous. But I just, I, I, I just say it's a difficulty of a school. It's a, they, these administrations probably trying to reach out to the kids, and some places are different than others, but I just say this can happen. And it can happen in people's lives as well when they, they profess all their Bible knowledge and they're failing to live it. Right? They, they, they know what God says and yet hardly living in grace. Anyway, Paul reaches a conclusion down here in chapter 3, verse 10. We've already seen it before. It bears repeating because it's so important. It's where we're all headed None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. It matters not whether God has revealed Himself in creation or in the conscience or whether He's revealed Himself in the Scriptures because all of us have rebelled against the knowledge of God. The, The bad news of the Gentiles is that they knew God through creation and they've rebelled. And when we come to the judges, God reveals Himself in conscience. And they have rebelled. And when it comes to the Jews, God has revealed Himself through Scripture. And they have rebelled. And the conclusion is that none of us stand before God. None of us are righteous. Verse 19 of chapter 3. The whole world is accountable to God for their sin. And the reality is this, is that God is angry with the sin that's in this world. He created a perfect world. Adam and Eve messed it up. And we live in that forever since then. And we're adding to it. But look back in chapter 1, verse 18. Now now it's my five minutes just working through this passage a little bit. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. First thing we see here is we see the wrath of God. That is the anger of God. God is angry with sin. Never, never lose sight of God's anger. You know, in, in light, uh, in our day and age, there's so much emphasis upon the love of God. Right? God loves us. Uh, you know, there's some song, He loves us. Oh, how He loves us. He loves us. Oh, how He loves us. He loves us. Oh, how... That's not how the song goes, but I think if you know the song, you, you know that's about how it goes. He, he loves us. Listen, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the emphasis on the love of God, okay? I'm not, I'm not trying to bash the love of God, but my text today speaks of the wrath of God. The love of God is important because it's God's kindness and patience and forbearance that leads us to repentance. Romans 2.4, it's not the message on hell that lead people to repentance. Oftentimes, it's the kindness of God. That leads people to repentance. It, it's God's love and grace that bring us back to Him in our failure, knowing that He is a, a gracious God. He's going to help us. And it's, a, it's God's love towards us that motivates in our love towards others. Because we love because He first loved us. So the love is coming to us abundantly from God. And then we turn around and that motivates us to come to Him in the first place. It motivates us to love people. So the emphasis on the love of God is wonderful. And, and, and may we as a church never lose sight of the, the love of God as demonstrated in the cross of Christ. But, listen, 
His love only makes sense in light of His wrath. And I would argue this, you cannot understand God's love apart from God's wrath and His anger towards sin. In fact, here in verse 18, it's the wrath of God that's revealed against all ungodliness and the righteousness of men, whether it's Jew or Gentile, Jew or judger or Gentile, however you, however you put them up, people trying to be moral, whatever, God's wrath is against them who, and this is key, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So why is it that the one who's exposed to the creation of God doesn't honor God as God or give thanks? Why, why is God angry at him? It's because he's got this truth, but he's suppressing it. Because he wants to pursue his sin, and he can't pursue his sin in light of a holy God, so he's going to just suppress that. He's going to like, like put that down. I mean, the picture here when it talks about suppression, kateko, to, to kind of hold it down. You ever gone on a trip and overpacked your suitcase? You're trying to get it in there, and you're actively, like, you're, you're pushing it down, and sometimes you sit on it, whatever, and you're trying to clip it down, and you're trying to, get, trying to get your zipper going, things like that. That's what people do with the truth that God revealed to them, whether it's in creation or the conscience or the Scripture, people will take what's known about God and will suppress that. And why? As it says here, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They've got to get that truth out of the way before they can walk and enjoy their sin. And, and so they'll, they'll deny the truth, and we'll see even later next week, that they exchange the truth of God for a lie. They're going to take the truth of God, push it down, extend it, believe this lie so that the lie can take them into whatever sin that they want to walk in. And God's wrath is, is angry against them. So remember, right, when we think about the love of God, let's rejoice in that. But let's remember first his, his wrath because you need to understand his wrath before you enjoy and know his love. And now we come to chapter 3, verse 24, right? We're justified by His grace, as a gift, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Whoever we are, however we sinned, how we fail, whatever category in, whether it's the Gentile or the judge or the Jew, whatever category, how we found, how we've sinned, we know that God in His grace reconciles sinners to Himself through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And in Romans, we're going to see the love of God abound. It abounds in chapter eight, chapter 5. It speaks about uh, just how he, he loved it. Chapter 5, verse 8, God shows his love towards this in that while we we're still sinners, Christ died for us. That he, he loved us even in our sin. It's when he brought us back unto himself. And we're going to see the, the love of Christ and how strong it is at the end of chapter 8. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And and there are going to be times we go through Romans where that love is going to be there, but let the the light of love come in light of the, the darkness of the wrath of God, and then it will come sweet. And it will motivate you and it will give you a holy desire and longing for Christ our Lord who has redeemed us through his blood. So let's pray together. Oh, Father, we, we thank you, God, for the, the bad news. God, that the good news might come sweet to our souls. And Father, today as we have just even begun to think of your anger and your wrath against sin... 
Oh God, I pray that you would help us to see, God, how all the world stands condemned and that no one will ever be able to charge you with any sort of unfairness at all. It's in that backdrop then, oh God, that we, we are shown grace and mercy in Jesus. I pray, God, that you would help in Romans us treasure that, that we might treasure it like Paul did, who was eager to visit those in Rome, so we might go on to Spain with the gospel to spread it forth. And Father, I pray for us as well, that we would be eager with this gospel, what we, what we learned today, what we thought about today, meditated upon today, that we might even this week tell others of the wrath of God that is, that is on them, because the grace is available to them if they but believe in Christ. So give us, give us those words to speak. God, give us praying hearts that pray for other people. God, that you give us open doors that we walk in them. I know I'm desperately just praying for that every week. They might have someone to talk to. God, would pray that you'd open hearts. God, find people genuinely interested, as most people in America are not interested at all. Let us still be our mouthpiece, your mouthpiece. God, help us in these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.